0: Fundamentally, that's what a PR person's job is, is A, to get your clients' key brand messages across, but somehow take what they want to say and turn that into what somebody wants to hear.
1: If you're at all curious what it's like to start an ad agency at the worst possible time, this might be the podcast for you. That's because I started one last year, and my God, it is hard. So what I'm doing is I'm talking to people who have found success in our industry and then applying what I learned to my own life and business. If it doesn't work, I'm screwed. This is, I shit you not, the seventh time I've recorded this. I don't know what's going on with me. Uh, I, I don't know. But it's been a funky week, you guys. It's, uh, you know, the the skincare company dropped us. If you heard the last episode, uh, we were almost at the finish line. And, you know, verbal confirmation from the, the CEO. And then just totally ghosted by him and, and told no by the creative director. So that was disappointing. And then um, we just literally... 20 minutes ago had a parting of ways with the PM that I was talking about in a previous episode he was somebody that you know I didn't feel like was doing a good job and I was having some trouble working with because the mistakes it felt like he was making mistakes that you shouldn't make as a PM I'm sure he has a different opinion about it uh, but things didn't necessarily get better I, not in terms of mistakes necessarily but in terms of friction between me and him and I think you know in having a conversation with I guess you could call him the COO, uh, the person that's doing all the operations and helping me run the company, is that I made it difficult for him to do his job well because it was having conversations that he wasn't involved in um, with the client and with creatives. And In my opinion, that's not the case. Everybody's part-time and has a full-time job for the most part, except for me. And you know this person, you know, wasn't on the most recent call uh, for the full thing. And towards the end, a lot of deliverables changed for good reasons. Um, you know, we're we're doing the strategy while we're doing, you know, while we were going to be creating a bunch of new content, and it sort of was like maybe that doesn't make much sense. So we're going to tweak deliverables in this way. It's going to be less stuff, but we're still going to pay you the same. So it's fine. And then I put on our Slack channel, I'm like, here's everything that happened in the conversation, here are all the things that are going to change, let me know if you guys want to talk about it. I added this PM, I added every everybody, but then, I don't know, it felt like I was um, changing everything on him. And it's like, if you were on the call, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And then I think I did what I was supposed to do, which is Slack everybody and communicate it. But apparently... I don't know. Even my operations person, I think, doesn't totally see it that way either. And and so in my head, my perception of the entire thing is I was, for the most part, fine. I think there were things that growing pains in terms of having to get used to um, not controlling and managing things. But I think part of that is because I didn't necessarily trust this person because of mistakes that were made in the beginning. And then also I'm just kind of controlling and that's something I need to work on. But at the same time, it's I just didn't feel like I did stuff wrong. That's just my perception. I haven't taken any time to like put myself in this person's shoes. I've never worked with a PM before, so I'm sure there's things I'm not aware of. And the, a lesson I hear and advice I hear a lot is as the ceo which i guess is what i am feels weird to say that i'm not sure if i should be but you know nobody else is doing it so as the leader i guess you have to take responsibility for everything you know and i don't know if i totally agree with that i mean it just doesn't make sense like if you didn't do anything wrong it's about holding the person who did do something wrong responsible but i do think that any situation Is a learning experience where you should accept that you could have done things better because you could always do things better. And so, in this particular situation, I had to accept, and I probably should accept because, you know, I don't know, this person felt vehemently like I was making their job difficult that I don't know how to work with a PM and I need to learn how to work with a PM if. I want to have one and holy shit, I want to have one right now. I'm going to have to take this back on. It's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to organize meetings. I don't want to put together schedules. I don't want to stay on top of everybody. I just want to like make great creative work and help build the gush brand and help pitch new business. So I'm exhausted guys. I'm like, this just happened and it's, it just sucks the energy out of of you because I get so passionate and heated and you know, What the fuck? What went wrong? What did I do wrong? I I don't know if it's the ego thing. I don't know, but I'm exhausted. I'm just totally spent. You know, so on that high note, um, we have a great guest today. His name is Graham Drew. He is the global ECD at Gray, but he's based in Malaysia. Uh, which I've never been there. I don't know if you've been there. Seems like a pretty cool place. But he's a really interesting guy. He started off in PR and doesn't have the most direct route to being a global ECD. At least you know from the from his LinkedIn resume that I saw. And I can relate to that. I started as a, an account guy more, and then a producer, and then got a shot at creative and made it work. But what's interesting about him is he, by coming up as a PR person, he was able to put a lot of value in. Hey, if it's not worth writing about, if it doesn't really disrupt culture, it's not a good idea. You know, it's about coming up with stuff that gets noticed. And that remind me a lot of how I came up. I was a part of a group at Ogilvy that was all about creating internet y, weird, viral, which is an annoying word, but like pressworthy ideas. And writing stuff where, you know, and you're right up for an idea where you're pitching the client or pitching the creative director, you have a headline that's like, if, you know, BuzzFeed wrote about this, what would be the headline? And if you're not able to be succinct in describing the idea with a headline and or... You know, it's not a headline that you would click on if you saw it. The idea is not good enough. And I've kind of fallen away from that a little bit, but I'm definitely going to bring it back. It's a really good way to go about things and keep yourself accountable. So I'll stop rambling as per usual. Graham Drew. One of my questions is just looking at your, your resume uh, on LinkedIn. You know, it's not a traditional resume that leads to, you know, global ECD. Uh, at least from the outset. So I'm I'm just curious, kind of like, how did you get to where you are from being an account manager, account director type?
0: Yeah. Do, do you want me to start at the beginning?
1: <laughs> yeah, start at the beginning. Uh, was it, what kind of birth was it? Was it a good one or? It was
0: smooth. It was quick. Um, you know, a couple of people cried. Cool. Sun came through the window, unexpectedly, that kind of thing. Shaft of light.
1: My mom and your mom would get along great. Yeah. Um, but anyways, no, Start start with your career because I actually started an account as well yep. and, and made my way over. So I'm just curious how you did it.
0: So yeah, there was never any kind of plan whatsoever. I'm extremely jealous of people that have planned or have ever had one. I was kind of pretty stupidly floating through university, kind of liked film, was good at English, um, but really didn't know what I wanted to do. And then in my sort of third year, it was like, okay, fuck journalism. I like that. And I, I wanted to be a t- I wanted to be a journalist and so I, I tried that out very shortly but the pay was so bad like it was crazy and I came back from university I was back from my mum and dad's house it just couldn't work you know I couldn't I could see no future of me getting out of my mum and dad's house anytime soon and also was working amongst some genuinely talented and brilliant people and I was thinking and they're like you know okay so he's 15 years old and like, I'm really lucky I'll be half as good as him I don't want that life in 15 years' time. I don't love this enough.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I just started applying to stuff in the media and literally was punting out my CVs, and all kinds of things. And some of them were PR agencies. And I didn't even know what PR was, really. And I got I got an interview and like you know, the the week before I had to find out what PR was. This is like the internet was only just starting at this time. So I am going to the library and reading up about it. And anyway, somehow I I got the job. And it was a huge education, a massive education. I mean, on the one side, you had the fun stuff, but it was sales, really. You had your clients with brands, and your job was to get them in the newspaper in those days. So you had to learn how to craft a story, and then you just had to hit the phones and, um, and call up people and, you know, have that incredibly soul-destroying experience of knowing that you've got an afternoon of trying to speak to people who want you to die.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least you could do it with email now. You know, you you don't have to see their face or hear their voice.
0: We didn't have that. We didn't have that. I mean, this is going to age me horribly, but I remember just sitting there with the fucking fax machines, And, going, and faxing it to newspaper
1: uh, Question about that though did it did it harden you or did it break you down?
0: It, I mean, you don't know it at the time, but it it, um, it made me super humble. But it also gives you a real resilience because you kind of expect to be knocked back. So when you are, you're kind of okay with it. It gives you a thicker skin. PR gives you a thick skin, but it also teaches you to craft your message to an audience because fundamentally that's what a PR a person's job is, is A, to get your client's key brand messages across, but somehow take what they want to say and turn that into what somebody wants to hear. That's the magic bit. That's the kind of combination lock that you have to try and unlock. And if you get it right, when you pick up the phone or you send that email to a journalist, they look at that and go, my readers want to read this, or there's half an hour of writing I don't have to do, brilliant. You know, so in many ways, your job is to make a journalist's job easier. And so when it comes to sort of me now and being in advertising and all that sort of stuff, is that it teaches you all these kinds of lessons about how to really distill a message, about how do you get your story or your brand essence or whatever you want to call it down into a single sentence, because that's the only amount of time you have when you're trying to sell to somebody. And selling a story is just the same as trying to sell a car or trying to sell um, dishwashers. You know anything. It's just that you have to hit the sweet spot, and capture people's attention. When you're trying to create something, to have in your head is kind of like a hygiene factor of why would anyone want to talk about this? Is it provocative enough that I want to tell somebody else about it? Because that's really what PR is. You know, it's now called earned media. It wasn't back then. It means that what you're saying. Has earned the right to be listened to. Has earned the right to be to be there. Whenever I'm reviewing work, whenever I'm trying to come up with stuff, almost subconsciously I'm thinking, why would anyone talk about this? Why would anyone be interested in this? You know, and it's turned out to be a good a good hygiene factor, I think, and a good measure of ideas.
1: We had to write headlines. Went like you know, so you do a write up of an idea, right? And our uh, group creative directors taught me one of my favorite tools which is to if you can sum this up as a headline that you can imagine being in a right yeah so sorry to cut you off it just like reminded me of that and that's that's always been super helpful
0: yeah you're completely right the 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 discipline of trying to distill what you're trying to say into a headline or even it's just a paragraph it's a really good habit to get into because it forces you to stop fucking around and waffling they're kind of like golden rules of of press release writing, which is like the five Ws, which is the who, what, why, where, when. And what that is, is when you're writing a news story, you have to get those five Ws into the first sentence or maybe two sentences. Who is it? Why did it happen? Where did it happen? Where did it happen? And when did it happen? You look at your first opening paragraph and go, have I answered all of those questions? And that's that was one of the training that I learned on my you know as I was first doing PR. And when you read the news story, it's you see that every most journalists do this. They'll go, "This thing happened here. This is why. This is when. This is why." And you can write that in an entire in one sentence if you get good at it.
1: So when you go about the PR process, because I actually didn't expect like PR is such a valuable thing. Yeah. And so when you go about the PR process today or whenever the last time was that you, yeah. you did it at the height of your mastery. What do you do? Do you like, do you reach out via email? Are you using LinkedIn? Um, do you worry about the subject line and just be like, this needs to be fucking amazing?
0: Yeah, I, I, think, I think the line between advertising and PR got really blurred as soon as social media started to really take off. Uh, to me, I think they're almost, in, they're pretty much indistinguishable these days. What they do and what their objectives are the same. You know, in the old days, PR works by getting your message into media channels. But as soon as social kicked off, it turned each one of us into a media owner. Where it used to be your audience was journalists, now your audience is everyone. So now, you know, when Nike or Burger King or anyone is trying to do a campaign, the success of that campaign rests on whether or not people talk about it. It's not about how much media they buy. So, yeah, I'd say I'd say everything I still do are PR campaigns one of the things I, again, I sort of learned as I got through is that, you know, with the PR thinking, they are brilliant at coming up ideas, not so great at the craft. That's, that's where I think there's a real massive disconnect. And something that really kind of opened my eyes as I started to work more in advertising is, is the obsession, the dedication and the training into craft. I think PR people and advertising people have equally good ideas. But, um, Because of the way that advertising is, because of the budgets, but also because of where the creative talent comes from, often, you know, they'll come from art school and stuff like that, is that their obsession with craft and their ability to polish an idea is that much higher. And then also you've got the planning department as well, which can build this amazing platform for your idea. A good strategy or working with a good strategist, 75% of your job is done before you even look at it. You know, because the hard part is really getting in an amazing insight. A planner or a strategy department can often retrofit a strategy into an idea, and it just makes the idea look so much bigger and smarter because you've covered all the bases. I guess I would say that there is no difference between advertising and PR anymore, in my opinion. There really isn't.
1: Okay, so you, you, said, you said a lot of interesting stuff. I'm being pulled in two directions. I'm just voicing what's going on in my head because I want to continue to hear your story, but then I also want to ask you about your process of you know, going through a brief, but let's let's kind of keep going with your story because I don't know where we are. You're you have V C C P share, which then became V C C P Kin. I'm sure you have an explanation for this, but you were the head of PR and you jumped from like, it's just like, what, what is this? When did, it happen? okay. How did you become the founder and creative director of it? Yeah. Uh, okay. It was the 2013 campaign agency of the year. I'll, I'll stop talking, but it's just,
0: it's just a load of headlines. It sounds far more planned and elegant than it actually was. Um, so I started off in PR. I learned my kind of basic skills in PR. Then I went traveling, um, I went all around Asia and Australia and everything, then came back then started in another PR agency called Shine which was very quickly became like quite a hot agency and then myself and the MD Michael Frolik just became really good friends we decided to jump ship and start our own agency we did that at the time we had um, Stellar Artoire and we'd done this amazing work with them and it was my sort of lead account and it was we're going to start an agency but we've got this client and they're big and they're paying and they're amazing and so great and so that was all supposed to happen and then after we made our announcement, it all got a bit messy and horrible and legal. And anyway, me and Michael ended up two weeks later, having left the agency under a massive black cloud, <laughs> and it was horrible. And it was just like, we've just made a huge mistake. But um, <laughs> you just keep at it because you don't have any choice. And then bit by bit, we got some clients, things started to roll, and then we became pretty hot.
1: So how did you get your first client? Because that's where we're at. We're, we're kind of in this all out new biz phase.
0: So we did a load of stuff, which frankly, I cannot remember. There was a lot of weird B2B stuff we did. The reason I can't remember the brands is because they're not even brands almost. It was just like, it was almost like friends and neighbors. And like my uncle's got a plumbing shop and shit like that. We would do anything. Um, but the first client of Worth actually came through the kind of the journalism contact was... Um, Loaded magazine, which at the time was a bit of an icon. It was like the whole um, kind of early '90s lad media thing. We promoted their articles, so the news stories that they came up with, we would then promote them into the press. We got into this brilliant dynamic where we would actually sit in on the editorial meetings, and they'd be talking about stories, and we'd say, "Yeah, but if you do this little tweak of an angle to the story, it's more likely to be written about." So we kind of like created PR from the inside, and it was it was an amazing. Kind of relationship.
1: Okay, so you so you started it started picking up. It it got to you know 2014 mm. and it stopped. What happened? Yeah.
0: So what happened is our agency was called Resonate, and um, that's an interesting thing, which I'm sure you've been through, which is uh, naming your agency and coming up for a name for your agency. It's so hard.
1: I ate a gusher. That's literally what happened. I was just like, it it was the easy. I'm not even kidding, man. It was. <laughs> I just don't put. I was just like, I don't give a f- I don't give a fuck. It's just a name, you know? Yeah. Red Hot Chili Peppers, one of the best bands ever. Like, what is that name? So I was like, it doesn't really matter as long as it's just not like Stiefler and Partners or something, you know, Fauci and Shot, you know? So I just... I just ate a gusher. Yeah, you're right,
0: because the name of your agency is actually irrelevant because you're defined by your work. What the hell does BBH mean? What does widening? What does what does mother mean? But we didn't know that, so we obsessed for ages.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's hard. It's it's hard to let it go. I just I just was like, I don't have time for this. So anyway,
0: we got um we got started to get offers by other big sort of PR agencies and we got our head turned by this huge agency and they said buy your agency, but we want to kind of like infect our big agency with all of the sort of energy and philosophy that you guys have, and we just got totally seduced by that. We did that, and then within the first week, Mike and I went out for a drink, and it was again the what the fuck have we done? The most precious thing you have in any agency is the culture, and it sounds slightly cliche, but it's um, there is no science to it. It's the hardest hardest thing to make, and the easiest thing to lose. We built up this culture where it didn't feel quite so much like work. You know, everyone had each other's back. It, they, it was completely informal. It was just fun, you know, and everyone helped each other and it was just really good. There was no egos or anything. And then all of a sudden we we walked into this machine where there were these politics, but there were some good people there too. There were some genuinely good people there too. But it was just bit by bit we lost our sort of mojo. And around about that time, as part of this PR group, they were part of a comms network and they had VCCP as, um, as part of their sort of big um, network. And they started sort of occasionally talking to us because they were, they could see the PR potential of, advertising you know they could see that the big campaigns needed sort of PR legs as well so I've started to be brought in to these meetings with the the ad agency and bit by bit time after time they started to say well you're interested in maybe sort of and um, I was very attracted by that idea because a, I was kind of getting a little bit frustrated with where the agency was but also the opportunity to jump into advertising was something that I'd never get I never thought I'd get that I never thought because it was kind of not my place, you know? So Michael was like, yeah, that's cool. The old agency's done. I'm probably going to go off somewhere anyway <laughs> as well. So we agreed and I, I went over to VCCP as this kind of head of PR. And then six months later, Michael went off and did his thing. And um, it was all very amicable. It was all very good. And then, so yeah, that's how I got into advertising.
1: So the question I have before we hop into the job you're in right now, you had to spend some time not working and just doing, was that a nice time? Were you going fucking stir crazy? You know, how, how did you feel? How did you, did you take the break well?
0: Initially, it was great because, you know, when you have children, you have this ever present kind of fear and guilt and anxiety that you're kind of missing it because, you know, kids do grow up incredibly fast and it gets quicker because they, as you get older, time moves quicker as well. And so I was really looking forward to spending some time with them actually. And that was... Awesome. That was great, and um, and also just landing in a new country and just sort of that whole "what the fuck is going to happen next"? I kind of, I guess, I kind of perversely, kind of, I'm always attracted by that. Maybe that I think I could say that I've never had a pla- had a plan, and I haven't. But I always, whenever there's something that sort of makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, then I kind of tend to head towards it. It's just that if something feels new, different, and maybe out of the comfort zone. When things are going fine and everything's almost like um, automatic, then maybe that's the time when you need to switch things up.
1: And then, But then you got hired at this place called Gray um, and you were... Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just to answer, just to answer your question first, it, it was amazing for about six weeks. <laughs> then I went, started to go completely nuts. I got into this sort of horrible routine of getting the kids up, taking them to school, and then just having this void where i've done all the interesting things i could find i didn't really know anybody and i I was actually desperate to get back to work and i think that maybe a lot of people have experienced that now with the whole covid thing of like it's a bit of a sort of care for what you wish for right you cannot wait oh it wouldn't be so great if i could just hang out at home and watch netflix it's like yeah it's great for about a week and then you start to go a bit mad so yes um i got this job at gray and i got the title of ECD which terrified me I was always feeling very kind of imposterish about being a creative director in the first place but to then be an ECD I was like yeah yeah sure yeah good ECD brilliant and then sort of left and signed the contract oh, fuck, I don't know how to leave an agency I don't know how to do, I don't know how to do that and you just have to start doing it and so much of I think any job is fake it till you make it I guess I tried to do that, that kind of like, yeah, well, obviously we do this, fucking yes, yes, we should do that, and so it was, it was really like that, you know, I just sort of got in and bit by bit started to work out how to do it, but I, I have always had this huge imposter syndrome about where I've got to and where I am, and it, it, it will never go away. Interestingly, I've I've spoken to a few sort of big dogs in the industry about that, and most of the, the kind of the good careers do have a huge amount of imposter syndrome. You know, you get hit by those feelings in the big meetings, and it can come at any time. But you talk to loads of other people and it can be debilitating, hugely debilitating, but it's also really healthy, I think. The trick is is to kind of recognize it as a healthy sign because if you're nervous and if you're feeling out of your depth, then you it can go one of two ways. You can let it drown you, or you can recognize that actually the reason you're nervous is because it's it's new territory. And maybe if it's new territory, you're going to do something new that you haven't done before. And so actually, maybe it's a really good thing. If you keep having those, those feelings of nervous and anxiety, it keeps you on your game. I would hate to be wildly confident about everything that I do, because I think that's when you you get a bit lazy and you get a bit arrogant and you maybe stop doing interesting things. But the one thing, you know, if I I would say to anybody that's coming up the ladder is that everybody feels like they don't belong. And actually it's the ones that really feel it are the ones that will do well, really, because it it keeps you sharp, I guess.
1: I I completely agree. And I mean, the imposter syndrome is definitely something that, that I feel from time to time. And I think, it, you know, I think it's very motivating for me. It keeps me very engaged. And like, the feeling that you have to prove yourself is actually a powerful motivator. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. The way that you know, I like to end these things is just giving, and it can't be about resilience because everybody says resilience and I know that that's important, but I just want to get something else from you. that's not about resilience. You have the freedom to give me any nugget of advice what would it be?
0: Oh shit, that's pressure. Um,
1: yeah, this is always people's least favorite question. So you're in good company.
0: I'm going to steal one because there was one that um, John Hegarty says all the time. And it's, it's kind of obvious, but I guess it's subconsciously something that I've done. And I say subconsciously because genuinely, genuinely, I never have a plan for anything. I just kind of follow my notes, which is that if you do interesting things, then interesting things will happen to you. When you dig into that, and, you know, when you're looking for people to work with, it's always the people that have come from slightly different backgrounds or done slightly weird things that come up with the ideas that are unexpected. The more things that you, in, that you experience, the more things that you read, the more things that you go out and see and do, the bigger your toolbox is. I would say just go out, read books you haven't read, go to places you shouldn't go to, talk to people you, you don't think you should talk to, it will make you a better creative. There's no doubt about that. The other thing is something that I mentioned before, which is that your idea is always going to be all the better if you can't assume that you're going to pay people to look at it. When you're coming up with an idea, be it a video, piece of content, a meme, a TikTok, or whatever, think, why are people going to talk about this? Why would would you talk about it? I would say always assume that you have to capture imagination rather than just steal their attention.
1: That makes perfect sense. I love that, dude. I love that. Well, Graham... Thanks for hopping in here and giving me your time. Uh, you know, you're a busy guy. This is going to be hot content. I guarantee it. People are going to love it. I love it. I'm going to send you the app when it's live and you're going to be like, wow, I'm, I sound great. You know, this is high quality stuff, but it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. I will keep in touch. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Take care, man. Thank you for inviting me. Of
1: course. See ya. You know, so I really like what you said about the imposter syndrome and, and, Looking at it in a positive way, looking in like, a, hey, this is actually kind of healthy um, and seeing the benefits of something that, you know, can feel kind of painful and uncomfortable and anxiety is inducing. You know, if you're nervous, you know, it keeps you on your game. Uh, it makes you more alert. It makes you care more. Um, confidence can lead to complacency. And, and I think that a lot of su- the, the most successful people have a feeling like, they're not good enough in some way, or they have something to prove. And whether that's healthy or not, I mean, you know, I I like feeling very motivated Regardless of where that motivation comes from, at least at this point in my life, I don't have time to do the deep work to figure it out. Uh, and I've already done a ton of therapy, so uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll revisit it at some point. If it ain't broke, don't fix it is where my mind is at right now. But um, it's if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you're feeling like you don't belong. I, you know, know everybody feels that way and also know that in some ways it's kind of a gift and that you're going to try harder to prove yourself. It's just a motivator, um, causes dissatisfaction it's just, uh, discomfort and insecurity will push you. So anyways, really appreciate that. Really appreciate his openness and honesty and his opinions. Great deal.
0: Until next time.